We turn together in God's Word to Matthew 5, verse 6, and then Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. We continue to go through our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and now focusing in week by week on each of the Beatitudes. Hear now God's word. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus explains that the righteousness that the law demands is absolute to every intention of our heart and action. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to fulfill this law, to achieve this righteousness, and to take the curse of our sin on himself. So the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount comes to you graciously. We come into God's presence trusting Christ who came to save us. We come and find blessings and promises. And that's why the Beatitudes over and over say, blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed is not happy, right? Happy is our culture's word, and the opposite of happy is sad. And Jesus just said, blessed are you who are mourning. Blessed is the opposite of cursed. And blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are mourning for their sin, who are meek, and now today who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The Beatitudes build on each other. And so we have been emptied. We have seen our sin, and now we are being filled with all the fullness of God for us, the righteousness of Jesus. That's where this fourth Beatitude takes us. It's the center, in some ways, of the Beatitudes. It reminds us that we are shaped by our appetites. Our hunger and our thirst and our appetites, one person says, drive us to do what we do. Think about our hearts, the hungers there, hunger for security, companionship, love, relief from grief or sickness. These are not bad things. We are created to hunger. And as Van Dyke says, like a nerve that awakens us to injury, hunger today and thirst awakens us by the Spirit of God to see our need for nourishment. It drives us to God to find our satisfaction in Him. So we look today 
at this point of where can our true satisfaction be found? First, this craving for hunger and thirst. When we think about hunger, in our context, kids, maybe you're hungry now, and you're thinking, I'm ready to have lunch. You go home, and you eat something out of the refrigerator, or mom or dad has something for you after church, or you're thirsty, you go to the drinking fountain. So we don't have a context right now, really, for what this is. This is extended famine, the kind of famine that is happening all over the world at different times in history and today. The kind of famine that hit Rome in 436 B.C., thousands of people died. Famine that hit Europe a number of times in 879 and 1016 and 1162. That's the kind of famine that this is talking about. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty and desperate and realize this. As the psalm says, blessed are those whose souls are fainting Why? Because God satisfies the longing soul. Psalm 107. He fills the hungry soul with good things. Psalm 42. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This language of hungering and thirsting is found all over the Bible. We go back originally to creation. Adam and Eve had the right desires, the right appetites for God. When they were hungry, they ate the food of the generous supply that God had given. When they were thirsty, they drank the water that God had supplied. And their appetites were for God and God alone in perfect righteousness and holiness. But when Adam and Eve sinned, when the covenant was broken, in Adam's fall sinned we all. And now Adam and Eve try to flee from God's presence. And now we live in a world under the curse of sin that is trying to live apart from God. And as Van Til said, the unbeliever rejects God, all the while depending on him while we issue our rejection. Van Til talked of the analogy of the little child who was sitting in their father's lap and slapped their father. The only reason the child can reach out and slap the father is because they are supported by the one they slap. That's the analogy. That is unrighteousness. It is anti-God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, their spiritual tongue and ours, apart from the grace of Christ, went dead. So by nature, we don't have a taste for the things of God. We're cut off from the bread of life from the living water. And Jeremiah talked about this, the prophet. He said in Jeremiah 2, my people have forsaken me, the the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and have made cisterns for themselves that are broken, that can contain no water. We go through a lot of water bottles in our home. Sometimes they disappear, left outside. Sometimes they break They're used on our family road trips. We love water bottles. Fill them up. But sometimes, kids, you have a water bottle that has a leak in it, doesn't it? And you fill it, and it just runs right out through the bottom of the leak. And that's the picture of Jeremiah, a cistern that's not holding water. And that's a picture of our hearts. We drink at broken cisterns apart from Christ. 
We eat bread that doesn't satisfy. We go back to it again and again. And many people spend their entire life doing this, pursuing the wrong thing. Springsteen was right. Everybody has a hungry heart. The Stones were right too. I can't get no satisfaction. Do you hear this in the songs of the culture? Augustine, our hearts are restless until we find rest in Christ. We see this in the Bible, the rich young fool. What shall I do, he said. I've got all this grain. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to enjoy all that I've earned. And God said, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. You're laying up treasure for yourself and not toward God. Have you heard of Louis Zamperini? He was in the Olympics back in 1936 in Berlin. A runner, he was about to go to the 1940 Olympics, but they were canceled because of World War II. He enlisted as an airman. He was in a plane that about 200 miles over the Pacific Ocean, lost its engines, exploded upon impact. He's out in the middle of the ocean. 47 days he's floating out there. The sun is scorching him. Sharks are coming up from underneath. The enemy airplanes are firing from on top. They hit his raft. He survived. He survived those 47 days. He survived a prison camp afterwards. And not only did he have all those enemies outside, but he also had a thirst within. There's a man who writes a book about this. The thirst within was for what? For water. And you think, kids, he's in the middle of water, right? There's 64 million square miles of water all around him. Why would he be thirsting? And why would he have a problem with not having water? Do you know why, kids? Because that's salt water. What would have happened if he drank the salt water as he's out on the ocean for 47 days? It would have dried out his insides. He would have suffered explosive diarrhea, a pounding headache, cramps, dizziness, vomiting, kidney failure, seizures, a coma, organ failure, irreparable brain damage. He would have died. He resisted the urge to sip salt water. The book is tremendously encouraging. He became a Christian later on. God preserved him. But this analogy is brought up because in our thirst, what do we drink often? Salt water. We consume things that look good and sound like they're going to quench our thirst, and they promise unlimited pleasure, happiness, comfort, joy, excitement, entertainment. They vow to remove our fears and our worries and our guilt and our shame, to fill the aching of our hearts. And we drink them, and we're left thirstier than before. They come in all different manners around us and within us. Galatians 5, the reading of the law today, talks about many of them. The sin that Galatians mentions that receives the most frequent denunciation in the Bible, do you know what it is over and over? Idolatry. Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. Idolatry is a powerful tool of Satan. 
And it is not just a stone statue that people maybe worshipped in long ago places. These idols of our hearts are anything that we love, desire, think about, and want to find satisfaction in apart from God. We all have them. The things we love the most. Our appetites, because of the fall, are sinful. So even good things like work and relationships and family and hobbies, good things of God, become idols in our hearts because our appetites for them are distorted. We look to them rather than to God to satisfy us. If money grabs your heart, you'll never have enough. If lust controls your heart, you'll always burn. When pride takes root, no amount of praise of people will be enough. When sloth sets in, we'll always need more time for laziness. And the world and our hearts are hungering after all of this stuff, this salt water. Drinking at broken cisterns. Eating bread that doesn't satisfy. Tom Brady's won, what, seven Super Bowls now? He's been in ten. The rumors swirl about whether he's really retired. A few years back, he had an interview. Someone said to him, okay, Tom, tell me about all the satisfaction you found right from these Super Bowls. He said, why do I have all these rings as a Super Bowl winner and think there's got to still be something greater out there for me? There's got to be more than this, he said. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. The journalist asked, what's the answer? Brady answered, I wish I knew. Where is the bread that will satisfy? Secondly, the meal. Every one of these beatitudes, remember loved ones, is first and foremost telling us about Christ. He is the son of righteousness that Malachi spoke of. His food was to do the will of his father. He was hungry in his human nature for righteousness, even as he was perfectly fulfilling all righteousness. And at the end of his life, in John 19, as he's hanging on the cross, do you remember one of the words he said, children? I thirst. Thirst in the Old Testament was a mark of being under the judgment and the curse of God. The soldiers put wine on a sponge. They brought vinegar. They mocked him in this, fulfilling Psalm 69. And Jesus said, I thirst for a reason, loved ones. Because back in John 7, he said, if any man thirsts, let him, what? Come to me. And out of my side will flow rivers of living water for you. So the gospel is this. Jesus bears the curse of thirst that our thirst might be quenched in him. He accomplished it. The Spirit applies it. The infinite love of the Lord for you, dear Christian, is that he suffered burning thirst so that he would be for you the fountain of everlasting waters. But until God's Spirit awakens us, we don't want that. We continue to go to broken cisterns. But in regeneration, God awakens our soul to a longing for him. 
And as Van Dyke says, it often happens as we get sick of the junk food of the world and the broken sisters that we keep in our idolatrous hearts going back to. Think of the prodigal son. His drive for sin, his drive for pleasure, his drive for sexual fulfillment, his drive for everything the world could give. He went, he sought it, he experienced it. And then he realized, I'm hungry. No money left. He went and ate the slop of pigs as he worked for a pig farmer. When he was hungry, that's what he did, eating the food the pigs ate. But Lloyd-Jones says, when he was starving, he went to his father. See the difference? When you've had everything you thought would satisfy, and it's pig slop, the Spirit of God prompts in us a new hunger for righteousness. The Samaritan woman at the well, another example. She tried this man, this man, this man, this man, this man, five of them, and the one she was with now wasn't her husband. And Jesus spoke to her in compassion. He said to her in John 4, I give you water that if you drink of it, you will never be thirsty again. She said, give me this water. Jesus himself is that water of living life. From the parable to the woman to Martin Luther, Luther experienced this in a different sort of way. He read Romans 1. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That's the power of God unto salvation. And he was ripped apart. Why? Because he knew that righteousness is an attribute of God. God is faithful. God is glorious. God is just. And righteousness means perfect conformity to God's law in heart, in intention, in desire, in action. God is righteous. None of us is righteous on our own. Righteousness is the opposite of sin. Our great need before God is righteousness, but we don't have it. And Luther read Romans 1, and he hated the righteousness of God. He knew that it condemned him He wasn't doing what the Pharisees were doing at that point when he read Romans 1 as he was about to be converted. Remember, the Pharisees, they're parading their righteousness, self-righteousness. That's not what Jesus is after here. He's not saying, if you improve yourself morally and just do better and try harder and become good enough, then God might like you. That is a lie from the devil. Luther realized, I don't have any more pretensions. I used to try that Pharisee way, try to improve myself, try to pray enough, do enough, make God pleased with me enough. And then I realized, Luther did by the Spirit of God, that it was all selfish. In sin, loved ones, we're curved in on ourselves. And to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to desire to be free from self and all of its horrible manifestations in our lives. To be driven away from ourselves to the righteousness of another. And Luther saw it. 
He was converted because in it, in the righteousness of God, the gospel is found. Jesus is the righteousness of God. He comes to atone for sin by his sin-bearing death. He comes to obey the law and achieve that righteousness we need before a holy God. So his life of righteousness, his act of obedience, his suffering and death, we refer to that theologically as his passive obedience, not that he was passive in it, but that he suffered in our place. All of that is granted and imputed to you. We confessed it today in the Heidelberg Catechism. It comes out of Romans. You receive it by faith. And God sees you, if you trust in Jesus by faith today, as righteous as his dear son. That's the foundation here. But that's not all Jesus is saying when he says hunger and thirst for righteousness. He also means, as God's disciples, a hunger for righteousness means whatever calling you have, Maybe it's as a teacher, a doctor. Maybe it's as a politician. Maybe it's you're staying at home with your children. Maybe it's children studying and being a student. In whatever calling you have, you are to promote God's cause. And wherever that leads you, you are to promote the righteous ways of the Lord, wherever that is. And that works itself out in this seeking after holiness, wherever you're called, in your heart and in your calling. So to hunger for righteousness is a desire to be made more like Jesus. By the Spirit, you are being conformed more into the image of Christ. R.C. Sproul, a number of years ago, he was a theologian who died a few years back, spoke with a man who wanted to help him prepare for the future. The man asked Sproul about his goals. What do you want to accomplish in life? Sproul went through the exercise, and at the end, he realized something was missing. What was missing in his goals? There was nothing there about righteousness. How could a Christian talk about what they desire in their life and not have the top of the list being Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, and all these things will be added unto you. What are we craving for when we hunger for righteousness? A hunger for God. A continuing thirsting for God. The Psalms speak of this because the Psalms are teaching us how to rightly think about God, to know God, to experience God, heart and mind and emotion and affection. David, my heart thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42, the deer is panting for streams, so my soul is panting for you. Isaiah 12 speaks of the joy of the waters of salvation. And we read today and also sang Isaiah 55. The song we sang right before the sermon was written by James Montgomery Boyce, not long before he died, right out of Isaiah 55. Come, you who thirst, come to the waters. You have no money. Come, buy and eat without money. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus picks up on that when he spoke to the 
woman by the well. Drink of me, I'm the living water. Eat of me, I'm the bread from heaven. If you hunger and thirst and you come to me, you will never hunger and thirst again. Your soul will be satisfied. That's what the beatitude is saying. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you what? You will be satisfied. We eat a big meal, Thanksgiving, or during the week, and we look forward to it, and we plan it, and we enjoy it, and we're thankful to God for it, but if we eat too much, are we satisfied? No. When, we, when I went back, and I, I loved that dark chocolate at night, and I, I wanted more and more, I liked it, but was I feeling better when I had more and more of it? No, then I wouldn't probably sleep as well, and my stomach, too much, right? Food cannot satisfy us in this way. This is true satisfaction. Rutherford said, Christ is as full of feast as you can have hunger. There is as much in the Lord's pantry as will satisfy all of his children, as much wine in his cellar as will quench all your thirst. And so, dear Christian, hunger and thirst until he fills you. You and I are at the same time as Christians hungering and thirsting and filled. The more we are filled, the more we hunger and thirst. And that's the blessedness that Jesus is talking about here. You're having a miserable day. Your life circumstances are filled with grief and suffering and sorrow. In Christ, you are blessed. They that seek the Lord, Psalm 34, lack no good thing. Psalm 21, the Lord is your shepherd in life and in death. I shall not, what? Want. As we are satisfied in Christ, we know we are not yet fully satisfied in this life, are we? We're not yet with the Lord. The reality of our indwelling sin, we go to salt water. We turn to it. Idolatry, lust, pride, greed. It looks like it'll satisfy. The more we drink of it, the less it satisfies. The more miserable we are. In our marriage, if we try to find satisfaction in our spouse, when they don't meet our needs or our idea of expectations, what happens? We get angry. And when that happens, we've made our spouse an idol asking of them what only Christ can be and do and give to us. Our accomplishments, our work, our calling, our sports, our recreation, our entertainment, if we look there, as our God, it is an idol that will be a broken cistern. A woman said, years ago I stopped looking to anyone but to God to satisfy me. There's no man, she said, that can love me enough. No child that can need me enough. No amount of money that can make me happy enough. Only Christ. This is the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And it is rare. A call to pursue a life driven by being satisfied in Christ alone. Contentment is to know and believe that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that Jesus is the pearl of great price. Contentment is not laziness. 
not complacency. It's the right God-given desire. We're not Buddhists. The desire for the Lord. The desire to be changed, to be more like Christ. The desire for the Spirit to produce fruit in us. And loved ones, to the degree that you are content in Christ, and I am content in Christ, you will see spiritual growth. A lack of contentment will lead to bitterness, unsatisfaction, and the breaking out of sins in all different ways. In marriages, in friendships, at school, in neighborhoods, in families, in churches, among nations. It's a struggle. We have indwelling sin. And we need to pray, all of us, God, give me an appetite for worship. Help me to hunger after you in prayer. Help me to desire to be with God's people. Because one of the deadly diseases as a church, Van Dyke says, that we struggle with is a poor spiritual appetite. Remember, sin makes us lose our taste buds for God. And when we're honest, all of us will say, yes, there are times when I'm not hungering after God. Yes, God, help me. God, change me. It's like when you're sick with the flu. You don't have an appetite for food in the same way, right? Stuff just sounds awful. And if it's really bad, you're just longing to be able to hold down a little water and a little Sprite and a little cracker. Or when you don't taste food or taste or smell anything. That's a picture of spiritual sickness. A picture of not desiring after God. And this is a prayer for us as a church. Emmaus Road, that we would hunger for the Lord. How does that happen? By the Spirit of God and realizing that what we consume becomes what we desire over and over again. You are what you eat. It's true. So it is with our time. We get so easily distracted. I think that is one of the besetting sins of this generation in so many ways. There are infinite ways for us to be distracted from the best things, from the Lord, from hungering for him. Our hearts are too filled up with other stuff. So we have a moment in our day, we, we've got something that we, we don't know what to do with our time, so we, we go here, we go there, but we, do we turn to the Lord? Our hearts are naturally cold and apathetic and dull. So how do we work up a good appetite physically? Well, exercise is one way, isn't it? So how do we spiritually work up a good appetite? One way is to serve other people, to get out of ourselves and to look around and find ways to love and serve God's people as the family of God, those in our neighborhood, those that we are around in our callings in life, our neighbor, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us. When we grow in Christ, we're asking the Lord to change and cleanse our spiritual taste buds that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. How does God feed us? Through the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. 
The deepest spiritual famine, Amos said, is for the word of God. These are the means that God gives to us by which we grow spiritually, by which we are nourished with Christ and his benefits. And so we come to be fed with God's word, through the word, through the sacrament. We come to grow in grace. We come to have a taste for the Lord renewed in us on the, Lord, on the Lord's day with his people. We come not only hearing the word, but then in the sacrament. We hear that God's saving work is for us in Christ. We hear that God loves us. And today in the Lord's Supper, we will taste that. We will touch it. We will smell it. We will again be reminded of all that we have in Christ and his love for us. We are pilgrims. Because we are not yet with the Lord. Finally, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord's Supper is a picture of this. When you come to the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, you are mine. I am your atoning sacrifice. Your sins have been wiped away. You have new life. My spirit is at work in you. When you come to the table today, you are communing with the Lord himself. There is satisfaction there, but it is not nearly what it one day will be. You will be satisfied. You see that? Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. That means, as we've said before, they and they alone. Those who are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness will not be satisfied. Luke 6 tells us, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Hell is a place of unending hunger and thirst. The soul is always gnawing and being destroyed and never being satisfied. It's a torment. It goes on and on forever. No satisfaction. Eternal lake of fire. But for the believer, the promise is the day will come when you will hunger no more, neither thirst nor more, for God's righteousness, Revelation 7, will cover the earth. And if you're not in Christ today, we read in Isaiah 55, come. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your life in order. Come to Jesus to be fed. Come to Jesus and feast on the bread of life. Come and repent and believe and find rest for your soul. Because that day in Revelation 7 is a day when the Lamb is in the throne as our shepherd, guiding us where? To springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If this longing is ours, we will have a sense of dissatisfaction with this world. Not that we won't thank God for the blessings he's given to us, but we will realize these things are not satisfying my heart. This world is broken. I want to go to the home of righteousness. And if you find that in your heart, by God's grace today, C.S. Lewis says, you will realize you have a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy. Which means what? You and I have been made for another world. You have been made for God. And you long, don't you, to see all 
sin abolished, to see evil punished, to see things made right, to see the Lord come and cast down and destroy all the darkness. You long to see the day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our worship today is a faint reflection of that. We are the colony of heaven on earth as we worship the Lord today. As we look to that marriage supper of the Lamb, and what a supper that will be. Revelation 19 speaks of it. It says, the Lord Almighty has begun to reign. There's great joy in heaven. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage that was promised in the Old Testament, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all people a banquet of aged wine, the best of meat, the finest of wines. On this mountain, Isaiah 25, he will destroy the sheet that covers all the nations. What is that? Death. He will swallow up death forever. The mountain is heavenly Mount Zion. The bride is the bride chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In the Old Testament, the wedding was announced. The Son of God took flesh and blood. The betrothal took place. The dowry was paid on Calvary, and we are awaiting the consummation right now. So the Lord's Supper today is a wedding rehearsal in anticipation of this banquet And we are invited to the banquet. Why? Because we are clothed in the righteousness of the Lamb of God who was slain. God provides the wedding garments. We're invited as we trust in Christ by faith. And to the eyes of faith, as we partake of the supper now, this is a sign of that heavenly banquet. Through faith, the bread and wine by the Spirit are spiritual food for you to feed you today with Christ. As we come, we look forward. Not only do we remember what Christ has done, not only do we participate in the heavenly places and feed on Christ now, we look forward to what Christ will do. When we will feast on the tree of life, when we will be in the presence of God's people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Oh, loved ones, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. And so, dear beloved Christian, as we come hungering and thirsting, we pray that God would feed us with himself and that our joy would be made full in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you bestow your riches on all who call on you in faith. As we come to the supper, we thank you that you look on us in the righteousness of Jesus, that you say to us, find satisfaction in my son, And that by your spirit, we would taste and see now that you are good. We pray.